But also, race is often tangled up with ethnicity, with religion, with caste, which take more of a prominence than race. So in the U.S., the driving force is race, and elsewhere, race is just one of the several identities that divide and may play a less prominent role. And as I said, I've said a couple of times, the dominant subordinate groups differ. So you have to identify you know, the, the marginalized group in that context, and you have to contextualize how you approach this work. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the All Inclusive podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Rohini Anand, former Chief Diversity Officer and author of the book Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. During the episode, we discuss the five key principles organisations should apply to create diverse, equitable and inclusive cultures that are sustainable and the biggest mistakes organisations make when implementing DEI globally. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Rohini. Hi, Natasha. Delighted to be in conversation with you. Yes, same here. So why not kick things off and tell our listeners a little bit about you and your journey to where you are today? Yeah, well, it's a, a long story, but I think it's a common story in the sense that for those that are involved in DEI, it's very personal for them. And my story is very integral to who I am. I grew up in Mumbai, India, where everyone you know, looked like me, same skin tones predominantly. I belong to the majority religion, Hinduism. And surrounded by others like me, I honestly had the privilege of not having to think about my identity. And um, you know, I moved to the United States as a young single immigrant woman. And that was honestly the inflection point in my journey, both literally and metaphorically. And my identity shifted from being a person who saw herself as the center of her world to being a foreigner, to being an immigrant and to being a minority. And honestly, Natasha, I was totally unprepared for that. And it was only when I was identified as a major as a minority that I realized the privileges that come with being part of a majority. You know, I was part of the majority growing up in India and I hadn't recognized my privilege in that way. And honestly, I was unable to until I was perceived as a minority and I experienced things differently. So, you know, this realization that identity is situational, that it's fluid, informed my research. I did my PhD at the University of Michigan and formed my research there and still informs the work that I do. So this vocation is very personal for me mm-hmm. and understanding what it means to be perceived as a minority, as an outsider is very much at the heart of DEI work. And so my work is about leveling the playing field so that everyone can succeed. And I'm really, I'm, you know, very blessed because I feel that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. So this path led me eventually to join the leadership team at Sodexo, which is a French global food and facilities management company with, uh, at the time, 460,000 employees in over 80 countries. And I joined Sodexo at a very turbulent time. I joined them when they were facing a promotion discrimination class action lawsuit filed by their African-American, their black employees. 
that predated me, which was a promotion discrimination lawsuit filed by them. And the journey that we charted at Sodexo, you know, what I like to say is what I call from class action to best in class, taught me so very much. Um, you know, taught me a lot about myself. It taught me about how you lead transformation in organization. It taught me about building relationships and trust with stakeholders and bringing allies along. So I left Sodexo in 2020, just before COVID hit, and I decided to write my learnings in a book. I used the, the COVID time to write my learnings in a book. So that's that's a little bit about me. Oh, fantastic. Um, no, that sounds great. And um, so I'm guessing that your experience throughout being at Sodexo and just really your own personal own personal journeys from um, immigrating over into to the US um, has so inspired you to write your, your current book, which is Leading Global Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. Um, so what for you in writing the book, how was that? So it, it was in kind of COVID times, as you said, so mm. you was at home, <laughs> we were all at home. Mm -hmm. So yeah. for you, how was it? Did you, did you face any challenges that you didn't expect when you were writing it? Yeah, so, you know, I, when I rewired from Sodexo, you know, I, I decided I wanted to write down my lived experiences. And for me, it was really an act of giving back what I had acquired, what I had learned from this work to those that do the really difficult, really challenging work of DEI culture change. So for me, this book is sort of an act of reflection. It's also an act of closure um, and, you know, an act of, of giving back in many ways. And what I found was that when I was doing this work, I yearned for a practical book because uh, a practical book on global trans DEI transformation, because when I presented, when I talked to people, I found that global diversity, equity, and inclusion really gathered the most interest, but also the most frustration. You know, how do you do this work globally without imposing any one worldview on the rest of the world? How do you bring people along when there's resistance, when they're don't acknowledge that there are issues. So this book for me was, you know, it's not an academic book. It's not a theoretical book. It really is a, a view from the trenches of someone who had to pioneer this work without a real roadmap. Um, and so while I was writing it, you know, George Floyd was murdered and there was this, um, you know, cascading effect of Black Lives Matter um, and the demonstrations around the world. So for me, it was, you know, also a recognition that, you know, progress has been painfully slow. I mean, even now when we look at it, the World Economic Forum says it's going to take over 138 years, I believe, for gender parity. I mean, that's that's unacceptable, right? So, but but the you know, but I think the the murder of George Floyd, as devastating as it was really was a moment to for organizations to become more ambitious, to unfreeze what they were doing, and it really provided an opportunity. So the book became, for me, you know, how do we go from sort of situational actions, discrete actions, to sustainable progress, especially globally? But, you know, your question about what did I learn? Uh, or was there any learnings along the way? I learned, of course, you know, this whole writing process was my first book, but I learned a lot about myself. So the book 
that you know where I started and where I ended up is very different because a lot of it is sort of my own journey. So there's sort of you know some sort of meta storylines to it. Yes, it's a, a practical book about you know the principles and how you can do this work, but it's also about my own transformation. And I make myself very vulnerable and I'm very honest in the book. And I talk about the mistakes I made because I want people to learn from it. So there are these sort of meta stories about you know, my own journey, um, you know, in diversity, because we're all a work in progress, um, my own learnings, as I talk about sort of the more practical aspects of how you do this work globally. Yeah, so I, I hope that answers your question. No, no, definitely. And I think being a leader in this space, it's important to be able to refer to a book, which is really from another individual who is also been doing the work that you're doing and can relate mm. to and that they see is relatable to them um and also more importantly that you are open and you're vulnerable to explain that not everything has gone perfectly because i don't think we don't live in a world where everything's perfect i don't think anyone can can say that they've done a job and and everything's gone the way that they've wanted it to go um but it's it's great that you've been able to to kind of express that within the book and and reveal some of those those challenges and actually how you've overcome them because that no doubt will will definitely help the readers um and they can they can apply that in in the organizations that they're working in so for you how do you define diversity equity and inclusion yeah so just going back to one point you just made uh, natasha i think one of the things also is i'm not you know at the time when i wrote the book i wasn't a consultant um, now, of course, I do what I call strategic advising and coaching to executives. Um, I was not an academic. You know, I have my PhD, but I don't describe myself as an academic. So it really was, a, I was a practitioner who had lived this journey, who had stayed with an organization and seen and led the transformation. So it's a very different angle. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So in terms of definition, so I basically define diversity as a demographic mix of people, including those from marginalized and underrepresented groups, and it includes both the visible and invisible differences. So for me, that's that's diversity. Equity, on the other hand, refers to eliminating the systemic barriers that inhibit the full participation and equal access to opportunities. And inclusion is the act of creating an organizational culture in which individuals can participate fully because systemic barriers have been removed. So the outcome of you know, diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture is one where employees experience a sense of belonging and where their uniqueness is embraced. So that's sort of you know, how I define it. Mm. And with that definition, how does an organization <laughs> do all of that <laughs> in a sustainable and global way? Yeah, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road right yeah. that's the challenge here so you know i think um honestly given the the very complex and dynamic nature of this work there's no checklist there's no playbook and honestly best practices are not enough you know i all, i say in the book in fact that best practices are a moment in a moment for a moment in time because you take your foot off the pedal and you know you can slip back very easily so, but I did recognize in doing this work that there's some principles that provide this sort of through line. And each principle is a simple statement. Each principle is simple yet very disruptive. And they don't provide 
standard plug and play templates based on what's worked in the United States. Because I think that's been a foundational mistake in people who've done this work that they use lessons learned in one part of the world, including me. And I share, you know, some mistakes made there um, on other parts of the world. But the principles can be applied with sensitivity to any culture. And essentially, it empowers global leaders to develop their own solutions and not to mimic any one country's experience. So the first principle is make it local. And that is, you know, what it says, that, you, that global DI change has to be anchored in an understanding of the local culture, the laws, the history, the language of each place. And you have to identify how identity is defined, how it's expressed, how it's perceived, who the dominant and subordinate groups are, the power structures. And understanding this context is the first step in really advancing, uh, having strategies to advance underrepresented groups locally. And understanding the culture, making it local, doesn't mean accepting the status quo, because really an outsider can be an influence for change because insiders may not be able to raise issues sometimes because, you know, like a fish in water, you don't see certain things or because they charge power dynamics. But it works best when you push for change to disrupt the status quo in partnership with local change agents who find the right entry, entry points, ensure relevance, et cetera. So that's make it local. The second principle that I have found absolutely critical in doing this work is what I call leaders lead to lead, leaders, sorry, leaders change to lead change. And what that means is that you have to have committed leaders at the top, at the senior most levels. It's absolutely fundamental to sustain DEI change. And when leaders embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion with purpose and passion, the organization goes from performative action to sustainable progress. And to do this, leaders really have to internalize the benefit of DEI to themselves and to the organization. And this sometimes requires a disruption of their worldview, a change that happens with sort of the painful work of introspection very often. And a change that happens not just with data and facts, but very often with stories and experiences. So transformative leaders really are the ones that combine this sort of inclusive mindset and behaviors of concrete action. And while the personal behaviors demonstrate conviction, it's the actions that, that demonstrate the commitment. So they've got to prioritize. So if this is done well and you have that leadership commitment, if they've you know, internalized the importance, it really, what they do is to prioritize DEI as they would any other business imperative. And that's absolutely critical from the top. The third is what I call principle is, and it's good business too. Because I believe, and it's and the data is very clear that without a compelling reason for change to change narratives, seventy percent of change efforts will fail. And so diversity cannot be bolted or siloed. It has to be congruent with the organization's how they do business, with their purpose, with their vision, mission, values. The third is what I call go deep, wide, and inside out. And that really recognizes the fact that organizations are comprised of these interconnected systems that work in concert with each other. And DI has to be infused into the processes, the structures, the policies. So you have to take a systems approach. And the fifth principle is know what matters and count it. And you know, metrics provide this sort of global framework and, and a narrative. They, they spotlight problem areas and they provide sort of possible solutions and instruments for change, but they have to be aligned with the local context and you've got to hold your teams accountable. So getting the right metrics sometimes, particularly globally is challenging because of the local laws. 
And also, you have to focus on what I call the lead and lag indicators. So the lag indicators are the outcomes, the representation, which a lot of organizations focus on. You know, how many do you have? Um, but the lead indicators are how you get there. Mm. What are the actions and behaviors that you need to do in order to, if done consistently, will impact those lag indicators? So I think those are the five principles. Make it local. Leaders change to lead change. And it's good business too. Go deep, wide, and inside out and know what matters and count it. So those are the five principles I think really form this through line that allow organizations to go through transformation. Oh, that's great. I think, so from your experience, what have you found to be the most common misunderstanding for Mm -hmm. organizations that are taking their DEI initiatives globally? Yeah, so maybe... Natasha, the best way to talk about that for me is to really talk about myself through yeah. two stories, right? So I think, you know, like I said, I, I do make myself vulnerable in the book, and I think people can learn from the mistakes I've made. So the first is really one lesson that I learned, common mistake is, and I learned this early on, was not to assess situations with a limited one-dimensional worldview. And what do I mean by that? I had actually hosted and organized a meeting in Paris to really sort of provide insights on the status of women globally at Sodexo. And the CEO sent out an invitation to the senior most women in the organization. So they are all attended and many of the women, particularly the European women in attendance raised very sharp critiques of the meeting because they felt that they had managed to overcome barriers and were in senior roles and therefore they didn't feel that a special session focused on challenges encountered by women in the organization was necessary. They thought it was counterproductive. They were also reluctant to be part of a meeting that was primarily comprised of women. Now, there was a purpose, the reason for that, which is, you know, we want to bring these women along. We wanted them to be on, aligned on the same page, supportive, allies, all of that. And they very clearly said to me, only participated because we were invited by the CEO. Several of them really expressed that they were in their positions, not because they were women, but because they had earned their job. So there was, you know, this discomfort. And I was surprised and frankly caught off guard by the resistance to women's only body, because at the time in the U.S., it was perfectly acceptable in the U.S. US context. What I didn't realize at the time was two things. One is that, you know, that it was less about them and their identity as it was about a masculine culture and their response to that masculine culture. So that was one. And the second is that, you know, I I should not have assumed that a women-only body uh, would be embraced everywhere like it was in the United States. So I was imposing this whole, my, you know, limiting one-dimensional worldview, which is very antithetical to the outcomes that we're seeking. So I should have started with where they were and understood that, you know, this is something that they were not comfortable with um, before, you know, having this sort of, you know, uh, women only kind of meeting. Yeah. That, that's one. If I can share one more story. Is that... Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, just, just before we go into your second story, I was going to ask, so if you could go back in time, what yeah. would you, what would you do differently in order to 
because I think the, the the meeting that you held seemed like that sounds great. I mean, I would be like, yes, I would. As you had the same mindset, yeah, I think this would be great—a women's only group. But so, if you now, from what you've just said, looking back, what would you do differently, specifically in organizing that event? Yeah, that's a great question. So the second time, and I learned from that, right? The second time when when we hosted the meeting, what I did was I actually it was part of a leadership meeting, so invited all the leaders. So it was men and women who were there. I also invite invited clients of Sodexo's. So it was clients who Sodexo respects, that clients that were big, you know, that you know, big customers of Sodexo's. Speaking, so women and men from these organizations talking about the importance of this topic in their organization. So they heard things differently. There was one that it's not just Rexo, it's not, you know, this is an issue that all organizations are addressing. And, you know, when you talk about belonging, sometimes we refer to belonging, and which is absolutely right, as, as employees wanting to belong to the culture of an organization, to the ethos of the organization. But there's another way to interpret belonging, which is these are diversity elite companies and organizations also want to belong and be part of diversity elite companies. So there's this desire to mimic and to be part of this, you know, diversity elite cadre. So that was two things. One was the client speaking. And the second was there were men there. And it's almost like, you know, I mean, it's not to me, it's not about having men validate that this is important. It's almost, you know, um, using using men to kind of upend their power, if you will. So, you know, you have to be careful about how you do that. So so I think everyone felt comfortable that this is, this is more of a business issue. Um, you know, it's not questioning um, uh, women's capabilities. Yeah. Which, yeah, which is what they were second guessing because they were part of yeah, the yeah, mm, yeah. So. I can I can totally see that in terms of kind of your backs up having a meeting to say, well, no, actually, like I've gotten to this position because of I'm good at my job, not because somebody or I because I've had to hike up some crazy hill um, and climb over some barriers of 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 men. Um, I get that, but I think your take the second time round does also show that actually sometimes having allies in the room that are men um, helps to steer the conversation a little bit away from just solely our organisation and the women in our organisation and how you've been treated while you're here to actually, as a business, this is what we're doing. This is the direction that we think we should be going in. Yeah, it's a business issue, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, it's... And I think that particularly, so I think it's an evolution, right? So in organizations that have have very masculine cultures, I think that becomes more important. So that's where I should have, or not just organizations in countries, right? Um, That's where I should have started understanding that context versus assuming that, you know, it works in the US, we've been doing it for a while, so it's going to work everywhere. If I can share one more quick story, if that's okay. Of course, yeah, share away. So the other story is, you know, the second lesson, and this is one, again, I think that translates for a lot of individuals and companies, organizations doing this work globally, is not to impose U.S. experiences in the rest of the world. Um, and I remember very clearly, I, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in India, 
I went back to do DEI work in India. And I remember clearly sitting in this room full of entry to mid-level Indian women, it's about 20, 25 women sitting in the room. And I was talking about sort of strategies to advance their careers. And I talked about mentoring and leadership development. Again, you know, because these are things that I worked had worked for advancing the careers of women in different parts of the world. Um, and I was just getting no reaction from the women in that room. So I sort of paused and I, you know, tried to um, tried a few words of Hindi, um, you know, to make, to make, to signal to them that, you know, I was part of them. I understood them and to make a connection with them, still no reaction. So then I just paused and I said, you know, can you suggest some things that would be useful to you uh, in terms of advancing your careers and what are the barriers, what gets in the way, um, et cetera. So, and this sort of caught me completely again by surprise. One of the women raised her hand and said, you know, we live in joint families, in multi-generational families, and we can't work late at home because we have to go home and we have to fix the meal for our extended family. And if we're not there to take care of the kids and fix the meal, our in-laws get very upset, et cetera. Um, so I, I was, you know, as I said, I was taken aback. So then I asked them, I said, so, and, and that, that kind of, you know, triggered this, you know, and, and there were several other women who talked about their experiences. And, um, and then I asked them, I said, so what can, you know, what can the, the company do for you? So they came up with a solution. And what they said was that if you host a recognition day a recognition event and, and invite our extended families, they can see what we do and the importance of our role. So we did that. It was wonderful. You know, their, their kids came, their in-laws, parents-in-law, you know, came, their brother-in-law, sister-in-law's entire extended family was there. We gave them awards. We made a big deal out of these women. And so, you know, did it change the dynamic? I don't know, but certainly, you know, occasionally if they were late because of a project or they had to work from home, whatever, they, they you know, got some understanding of mm. their, the, their commitment. So, you know, this really did teach me that I couldn't ex impose my experiences, you know, based on my experiences in the U.S. and the rest of the world. And I honestly completely forgotten the multi-generational joint family dynamic in India where the couples live with the husband's extended family and the daughter-in-law is expected to take care of the housework. And I had forgotten the role of the Indian woman, not only as a mother and a wife, but also as a daughter-in-law. And to be honest, Natasha, I had forgotten my own limitations as a, as a multidimensional being, you know, and I, because I focused on this sort of one aspect of my shared identity with these women and I'd overlooked the many differences. So that was another one, you know, lesson not to export initiatives that may have worked at home or, you know, one part of the world and the rest of the world. Yeah. But and I, I think, think that those would be the two. Yeah, no, those are those are great examples and, and fantastic stories. Thank you so much for sharing. And in the last one, as you were speaking, it got me thinking that actually, I think that also sheds shines a light on the importance of actually just asking the question, right. what, what, what do you want to see? Because right. then the people that you're trying to help most likely are going to come out with a solution that is coming from them and therefore it's going to be open and, and more receptive. Um, so I think in, in addition to that, it is just asking the question, like, what do you want? How can we help you? Yeah. 
And, and, you know, the temptation to sort of assume that you understand a place without checking out your presumptions. I mean, I think that's, that's, that becomes an issue. So asking uh, for clarification, I think is, is great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've so much enjoyed this conversation, Rohini. Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, so um, we've talked about kind of opposing, not imposing that kind of U.S. culture or, or um, dynamic into into other countries or other cultures when you're kind of creating these DI initiatives more globally. So how mm. do you respond when kind of people say DI is a US thing? Like mm. that's a US concept. Like we don't have those sorts of issues over here. We're fine. Yeah. So I think that, you know, is a challenge very often. And I think that's often in response to the fact that we do use very often this one-dimensional US lens, right? That we know what diversity means. And I shared that in the stories that I shared because, uh, you know, the dominant subordinate groups are different depending on where you are. And, and honestly, Natasha, race is a very good example of that because it doesn't translate in the same way as it does in the US for historical reasons. So for example, in France, um, you know, I work for a French company and you're forbidden to gather data on race and ethnicity directly. And race was removed from the French constitution in 2018. And this yes. was in response to the persecution of the Jewish people and an effort to rebuild after World War II, um, the French you know, redefined themselves as indivisible. So you couldn't identify people by community affiliation, but rather by sort of objective criteria like migration or citizenship. And you can't use, so that the state couldn't use identity data for state action. So I think that's, you know, a context that you have to understand. And then you have to figure out, you know, what's the best way to address issues of race with using local language. So you can use language like, ethnicity, you can use culture, you can use refugees, you can use immigrants, right? So th that's how you would yeah. approach it. But also, race is often tangled up with ethnicity, with religion, with caste, which take more of a prominence than race. So in the US, the driving force is race, and elsewhere, race is just one of the several identities that divide and may play a less prominent role. And as I said, I've said a couple of times, the dominant subordinate groups differ. So you have to identify, you know, the, the marginalized group in that context. And you have to contextualize how you approach this work. And you have to understand that diversity doesn't always translate in the same way as it's understood in the U.S. And you have to be aware of sensitivities in politics, like I said, you know, in France. So in response to your question, you know, how do you respond that, you know, that DI is a U.S. concept? First of all, don't approach it in the way that is very sort of U.S. focused. Yeah. You know, start with the local, what the local context is. Start with the dynamics of the local context. You know, I mean, talking about issues of race and blackness in African countries. It's not going to work. Yeah. Because <laughs> everyone is black, right? Yeah. So maybe there you talk about, you know, the global south you talk about colonization you talk about ethnicity you talk about religion there are other things mm. that you talk about in terms of dominant subordinate groups and insider outsider dynamics yeah i think the other piece is that you really have to make it about the business right so when you talk about you know 
Um, we don't have issues of race. If you can localize it, right? I mean, for instance, in uh, let's say in India, um, if you have an organization that, and, and in India, issues of caste and religion, and of course, gender as well, play a very prominent role, but they're very politically charged, particularly issues of caste and religion, very, very politically charged. But if you can talk about the fact that, look, you know, you don't have, your, many of your customers um, are of lower caste, or many of your customers are religious minorities like Muslims, but do you have any leaders in your leadership team that are Muslims, uh, you know, yeah. uh, reflecting your customer base? I think that it's important to really make that connection based on the local context and whoever the dominant subordinate groups are. I think the other thing is to get them with other others that are doing this work, so client organizations or peers from other companies. You know, as I, I mentioned, you know, they like to belong to this sort of diversity elite organizations. So if they say, oh, it's not relevant here, find other organizations in that in their context that are doing this work. Yeah organizations doing it and this is why um i would say find local allies you know stakeholders who can speak on your behalf and then i you know i think you once with the understanding of the context you've got to be able to push you know to ask questions that insiders may not be able to and then i think lastly also put put your you know leaders in other people's shoes um, you know, I remember very clearly one very quick story, Natasha, um, one of the CEOs at, at Svexo, you know, we had a global priority on gender. And I remember him asking me one time, he said, why are you diluting the focus on gender by bringing in issues of race? Now, this was a, a, a straight white French man, right? Bringing in issues of race when race doesn't translate globally. And he was right. It doesn't translate in the same way. I just shared the context in France. But I realized that he had to understand the importance of issues of race, particularly in the United States. So I invited him to one of the ERG, the African-American Black ERG meetings in the United States. And he was one of two Frenchmen who attended. He was one of a handful of white men that attended. And him being a minority in that context, in a room full of Black leaders, and then listening to their lived experiences of the black men, many of them who he knew because they were leaders in the organization was very transformative for him. It was very disruptive. And after uh, George Floyd was murdered, he sent out this very heartfelt message to the organization, which I don't think he would have done had he not had that experience. Mm. So, you know, in response to your question about, you know, people say that it's a U.S. concept, we don't have issues here. I think you've got to really localize it, right? And speak to them in that language, make it about the business, and then bring in strategies like peer organizations or peers from other companies, local allies, you know, raise questions, ask questions, give them experiences that, help them to understand that yeah you have issues they just show up in a different way oh i love that so, thank you so much rohini and just before you leave us could you give some parting one piece of parting advice to the dei leaders of tomorrow one piece of advice <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think doing global work you have to listen you have to build relationships with all stakeholders even those that are most resistant 
you have to identify your allies and change agents and you know understand the context of dominant and subordinate groups. But ultimately, what I will say is that you know transformation happens at the intersection of the personal and the systemic, and it's work that's ongoing. So there has to be a very personal and a professional journey for each one of us. And we all have to examine our own self-awareness and our inclusive behaviors and actions and use ourselves as instruments of change. So this is as much of a personal journey as it is a professional journey. So oh, fantastic. That's great. Thank you. That's some fantastic advice there, Rohini. Um, and how can people connect with you? Great. So I do have my book out um, and I, you know, do do, as I said, strategic coaching and advising. I do talks. You can go on my website, www.rohiniyanand.com, and that has all the information, a lot of resources. Um, I have a LinkedIn community. I also host every other month uh, a conversation where you can bring your questions and I answer them. It's called Learn from Leaders. And, um, you know, we have several hundred people that sign up and I invite guests into those conversations. So there's many ways that you can connect, but go to www and get my book yes of course yes diversity equity and inclusion yes and i shall be linking down a link below the episode of rohini rohini's uh, website as well as a link to purchase her book which is fantastic you guys definitely have to have it it is a part of my book collection now also um, and I'm thoroughly happy to have had this conversation with you, Rohini. Thank you so much again for appreciate you taking the time for speaking with me and to our listeners.